The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Are you ready? From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's the Boston Podcast with David Yaz and a rotating cast of characters from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. This is our PC. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all the ships at sea, lovers, muggers, and thieves. Welcome to the Boston Podcast. My name is Dave. If you like our show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And by the way, if you would like your own podcast, go to pod617.com to get started. It's what we do at the Boston Podcast Network. We can produce your show from start to finish. You can do it from the comfort of your home anywhere on this great planet we have here or at our Westwood, Massachusetts studios, pod617.com. Go there to get started. To get started, It's the podcast here today, the Boston Podcast. We tell the stories of our city through the voices of our city. We're going outside the city today. Why, you ask? Because I have one of my heroes on the line. See, I used to be a writer, kids, and I just got into podcasting because I'm lazy, and you don't have to pick up, uh, you don't have to put pens to paper. It's a lot easier to just ramble on the mic like I do. But when I was a writer for many years, the best writing coach I ever had was named Jim Stasioski, and he joins us in the virtual studio today. How are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm pretty good. Now, tell, tell our listeners where you are geographically. I live in, my wife Sharon, Sharon and I live in Boulder City, Nevada, mm-hmm. which is the city where the workers for the Hoover Dam lived and and traveled a couple of miles. I'm about 10 minutes from the Hoover Dam. And it's a small town. It's outside Las Vegas. And we can be in Las Vegas in about 20 minutes or a half hour. Yeah. It's a very, it's a quiet community. In fact, it's one of the few, and maybe it's the only community in Nevada that does not allow gambling. There is no gambling in Boulder City. So Really? The only gambling is that you came to me and asked me to be on, and that's the gambling you're taking today. That's interesting. That's the, the no gambling in Boulder City. It sounds like the opening line of a of a musical or something. But yeah, I'm familiar with the Hoover Dam because every time you go to Vegas, there's one guy in the group that says, "Hey, you guys want to uh, take a little trip out to the Hoover Dam?" And everyone looks <laughs> looks at them funny and said, "Why would we do that? We're in Las Vegas." But anyway, so the reason I want to have you on the show, Staz, is because uh, first of all, it's uh. It's never a bad thing to catch up with old friends, and mm-hmm. I have such fond memories of us working together. For those that, that care, I was uh, I worked for Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly for 15 years, and Staz was a, a kind of roving coach for Dolan Media Company. But you would come in, and you would do, you were like noble, virtuous version of the Alec Baldwin character in Glengarry Glen Ross. He, yeah. come, he comes in to kick their ass and tell them always be closing. You would come in and address our staff of writers and tell them always be creative. And But but it was always an amazing pep talk. So I don't know if you can answer this question briefly, knowing you, Staz, but tell us why you like writing. Love writing, I should say. I grew up in a family of readers. My mom and dad, by the way, both of whom are from Western Massachusetts, both uh, grew up in Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts. Nice. 
Uh, when I grew up in Baltimore, my mom and dad moved down there after, to get married. Anyway, my mom was a high school graduate, but she read everything. My dad was not even a high school graduate, but our family, the Stasiowski family in Baltimore, subscribed to three, count them, three daily newspapers. Mm -hmm. And we read them all. And I loved, I loved reading from that time. I was a reader before I ever went off to, to first grade. I'll tell you a story about my mom. Every paper I ever turned in from uh, elementary school through high school, the night before I turned it in, I stood, stood before my mom and read it aloud to her wow. so that she could help me get it right. And, and that was really great training for me. Uh, I never envisioned being a journalist, actually, I, but I always wanted to write. I wanted to find some way to write for a living. And I stumbled into newspapers and, and took it from there. And I still write all the time. I write every day. In fact, I write all the time. If I'm driving down the street and some store has a sign out there, well, I'll rewrite it for them, at least in my head. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, that, that's my whole life. I'm constantly doing that, too. That's because they contain so many despite the fact that that time and and thought leadership should progress in this country there are some people that still put extraneous quotation marks on things like you you talk about walking by a sign you walk by a sign that says uh coca-cola and then in quotation marks ice cold what <laughs> what's what is what's with the quotation marks just tell us it's ice cold do you mean it's actually not really ice cold it's just we're just going to call it ice cold <laughs> anyway you you have this uh, great bit you do where you describe how you can get up in the morning and start walking around and come up with ideas for stories that could be newspaper stories. Give us a, a, a little bit of that, because I think now more than ever with the not quite death, but definitely slumping of newspapers, we are left with all kinds of headline grabbing clickbait uh, type artic articles that usually aren't very interesting. So. Tell us how you used to find interesting stories. The theory of creativity is that the harder you concentrate on creating, the, the worse it gets because <laughs> you're putting pressure on yourself to come up with an idea. And my premise has always been, you don't need to do that. You just need to take your mind off that specific thing you're looking for and just let your mind want, let your mind wander. And I, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of, of one that happened to me. I, I worked at two daily newspapers, one very small down in three, actually, in my entire career, but one very small down in Florida, one medium sized in Washington state. And I said to my editor, I, I was getting bored. I was getting bored with my, with the work I was doing. And I said, if you'll do me this favor, I will come up with a good community story for you three, three times a week. But you've got to let me have a couple of hours every afternoon just to drive around. And he said, oh, God, I can't do that. I said, give me a shot at it. Mm -hmm. So we did it. And I would take a photographer with me. And, and we, we came back with something every time. It, what, it wasn't always great journalism. It was very rarely anything to do with issues. I think the only time we did it was we found a guy who did gun repair, and he was a very strong-minded guy. But anyway, there was a road being uh, widened in our community, and I was with a photographer who happened to be a very creative guy. And we'd already been driving around for about three hours. 
And we'd see this and he'd shoot it down or I'd see that. He'd see something and I'd shoot it down. And I said, go back to that road. There's something about that road that we can do. And what they were doing, it was taking a two lane road and make it into four lanes. So on both sides, they were they were plowing up uh, whatever had been there. And this had been a residential road. And we we kept going back and kept going back. And I said, stop, stop right here. And I said, turn around, look at that. And he said, it's somebody's front lawn. He said, look at that tree stump. Look at how big that tree stump is. He said, yeah, that is, that thing is huge. I said, here's the story. Whoever lives there has lived there for 40 years. That tree was small and it grew to be so big. And they used to do picnics Mm. in front, under that tree. He said, you're bleeping crazy. What are you talking about? I don't know. (laughs) I I don't. But that's what we got to figure out. We got to figure out what that tree stump means to that person who lives there or those people who live there. We go knock on the front door, no answer. Knock again, no answer. We go around to the back. There's, we look through the kitchen window and there's a lady sitting there. She must've been 75 years old, knocked on the door. And the story worked out exactly as, as, as we had envisioned it. It was a family thing. They had their summer picnics there. She was in tears by the time we left. We left this poor old woman crying, but it was, <laughs> the, the tree had meant so She missed the tree. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I came up with that from that experience. I used to do seminars on creativity, and I said, every tree stump is a story. Wow, I like that. We live in a world that needs more trees. Mm-hmm. Now, why in the world would you cut down? And look at what we're cutting down the tree for, so we can get more traffic out there. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Now, that, I, granted, that was in the mid-1980s, so long time before we worried a whole lot about global warming. But that's the kind of thing. And I, I've, I wrote a lot of stories in my journalism career about politician covered politics a lot but good people bad people crime trials all kinds of stuff and look what i remember i remember the story about the tree stump it's mm. the first one i think to tell you that's, that's great my yeah. my version of that might be when i was a writer for lawyers weekly boston was known for sick courthouses the courthouses were all in the city were all old and decrepit and people were getting sick and they they were creating and building a new courthouse. And finally, they got their act together and got the funding and the courthouse started going up. And it was called the it was always referred to as the New Chardon Street Courthouse because it was on New Chardon Street. This is these are the visionaries we're dealing with here. And so <laughs> and, and so they start building the thing and they're still referring to it as the New Chardon Street Courthouse. And so finally, I'm like. Does anybody wonder why it doesn't have like an actual name, like named after something or somebody? And so I called and I said, is it really going to be called the new Chardon Street Courthouse? And they kind of said, you know, that's what we've been referring to it as. And and so sure enough, the thing goes up and they chisel it in stone, the new Chardon Street Courthouse. And Mm -hmm. I wrote I wrote a column saying there wasn't anybody in Boston you could have named it after. I mean, you couldn't have or or call Taco Bell and have it be that and get get uh, a million dollars and or more from Taco Bell, call it the Taco Bell Justice Center. Eventually, a year later, they did name it after uh, Edward Brooke, pioneering politi- African-American politician in math, sure. Sure. and sure. Uh, had to unchisel the letters and rechisel them at great expense to the taxpayer. 
But the but the the other example I like to give of that, you being a baseball fan might like this one, Staz. In in two thousand four, you'll remember that my beloved Boston Red Sox finally won a World Series after eighty six years. And uh, a couple of weeks had gone by since they had won. And there was the parade. And, of course, the newspaper still being fairly strong in Boston. Every writer had written everything you could possibly write about the grandfathers who hung on long enough to watch it with their grand. Every story had been written. But Dan Shaughnessy, who is a wonderful writer, columnist for The Globe, although although usually way too bitter for, for my taste. But, but I love you, Shank. But he asked the question. What happened to the ball after Keith Folk got the uh, he, ball was hit back to him? He flipped it to the first baseman, Doug Mankiewicz, and everyone celebrated. The game was over. The World Series. What happened to the ball? And he and it turns out the first baseman, Mankiewicz, had just taken it. And, mm. and this ball that was an historic ball. And, right. and what followed, for better or for worse, was a lot of wrangling and litigation over who lost the ball but to, but but to hit that i mean to think of a completely fresh idea for something that had been apparently beaten to death right well and another example and from your old paper dave frank david frank who i believe now is a judge he is he is district court judge david frank yes wonderful wonderful journalist probably as curious as any journalist that i ever met and and just having a conversation with Dave, I can't remember if he went by David. I think he went by David. I don't remember now. But anyway, having a conversation with him was like a challenge because you couldn't just say something. He would pick it apart <laughs> and, and vice versa because that's what I do. And so we had some wonderful long talks that really went nowhere. But I remember he went, uh, he went. He wrote the story. You might remember this. Some There was some big decision in one of the appellate courts, and somebody went around, either David or, or you or somebody, another reporter, and asked a bunch of lawyers, what does this mean? And the, the floodgates are open. Now the floodgates are open. Mm. So David, being the curious guy that he was, went back and checked as far back as he could for decisions at which people said, the floodgates were open mm. and to see whether that actually had happened, whether right. there had actually been a whole flood of cases because of this appellate court. And he found out, he thinks, like, what, in a third of them there was, in a third of them there wasn't, in a that? third of them, nobody even remembered the decision. It was, <laughs> right. but, but how do people, that's what we, that's what we need. We need to, to be that way because people are not reading newspapers. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why we, we need to give people... Donald Murray, who was a great writer and a writing coach at the Boston Globe, said, report for surprise. I, I, I have it here somewhere. And he said, we just, we just do the wrong things, and that's why readers turn us off. Was that your doorbell, Stas? Is somebody at the door? No, that's... A, I, <laughs> I have a Stephen King clock. You know what a Stephen King clock is? It's a clock yeah. that rings bells, and about five years ago, it stopped ringing the bells, and we took it to the clock repair guy, and he said, oh, this is going to cost you 300 bucks to get it to get it fixed, and we said, no, never mind, so we, it was dead, and then about a year ago, it started ringing again, so I have, a, I have the fear, I have the fear that one night, the clock is going to kill us all. It's the, it's the Christine of clocks, is what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Here, 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 Tell me. Yeah. Here's, here's Donald Murray. The best writers seek surprise, delight in what they do not expect to see. They come to the story of the focus and expectation 
but they treasure the contradiction, the quotation that goes against the grain, the unexpected that reveals. Now, here's the key point. Unfortunately, journalists, editors, and reporters usually see what they expect to see, even if it isn't there. Mm. That's what we do. And we give people, because of audience survey, right, reader surveys, and all this other crap that, that newspapers did, we try to give people what they want. And we can't do that. We got to do what we like, what we think is going to work as a story. The reason we're the storytellers, right? The reason we aren't the storytellers, we are the storytellers. And 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 Herbert Bayard Swope, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of World War One, somebody asked him one time for the secret to success, and he said, "I cannot give you the secret to success, but I can give you the secret to failure, which is try to please everybody." Mm. And, 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 and that's what, that's what David, that's what David Frank didn't do. That's what you don't do. You wrote columns that made people mad. I wrote columns and stories that made people mad. And that's a good thing. Now it's not a good thing if we're inaccurate and it's not a good thing if we're sloppy. And it's not a good thing if we are taking liberties with our responsibility to be fair and honest about what we're writing about. But it is a, a good thing when we're trying something that nobody else has tried. And that's what you're talking about with Shaughnessy, which I believe he started in Baltimore. I'm pretty sure he did, but maybe not. I might be thinking of somebody else. But I remember when you, and, and, and here's a key. Mm-hmm. Remember when you came up with the idea, I think it was you, but maybe it was somebody on your staff and you just always took credit for it. <laughs> you, you came up with the idea to put out a legal newspaper for non-lawyers. I don't remember what you called it. First it, was called, it was called Exhibit A. Exhibit A, that's it. I will take credit for it. <laughs> it was a great, it was a great idea, yep. but it never really caught on. It never really became a huge success. Correct. But you got to be willing to fail at something yep. like that. You got to try stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, if you don't, that's all we give them is 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 what the other audience surveys say. Forget it. That's yep. that's wrong. That's the wrong way to look at life. I remember your your philosophies are coming are rushing back to me because I rem- I'll I'll give an example of the kind of thing you would say you would say well what's going on gas prices are very high so we're going to send a reporter out to a busy gas station and just interview people about the prices of gas now what do you think they're going to say they're probably going to say this is terrible they might blame the president they might complain they might say I I remember when gas was 50 cents a gallon and then they say these things, and we write them down, and we actually put them in the paper. This is what you, you said. So it's like you don't even need to read the article. It's, all, it's written before you even do the research, right? You don't even need to read it. That's exactly right. <laughs> and we call that, what, what we call that in trying to be creative, we call that contrarian thinking. When things are going well, write about what could go wrong. Why, did, why, haven't, why didn't we have all the time that inflation was not a problem? Why didn't we have analyses saying, okay, inflation inevitably hits. What are we going to do about it? Now, what are we talking about? Well, why the Fed, why is the Fed so slow? Oh, why doesn't Biden have a plan to do this or do that? It's it's nonsense. We don't need to write about things are great when things are great because everybody knows they're great. Right. It's it's like the weather. I'll give you the example. If you ever worked for a daily newspaper, Editors love weather stories. Right. <laughs> Reporters hate weather stories. Mm-hmm. Now, now, if you're if you're warning of an upcoming hurricane or something like that, that's good. You should do those stories. Mm-hmm. 
But when you get 24 inches of snow, do you really need to send people out, reporters out, talking about what's going on in the snow? Mm -hmm. They know what's going on in the snow. They were there. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the TV version of that is the local news here in Boston had a reporter named Shelby Scott, who seems to be just a delightful woman. But the poor thing, there are there are about there are hundreds of photos of her just standing out in the snow with her with her winter coat on and, and saying what? Guess what? It's snowing. It, but it, for some reason, that that's that's an epidemic here in Boston. I don't know. So so the thing about it is when you're a reporter, you hate weather stories. When you're an editor, you love weather stories. Mm. Now, every editor was a reporter who got promoted. So on Friday, he was a reporter. Or I was a reporter. Mm. I got promoted to editor. And on Monday, I came in and I was an editor. What happened over that weekend that <laughs> made me love weather stories? Something really drastic happened, but I, I, I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> you you had a, a great story, which I will have you retell, at least in brief stats, about a, do you remember a, a letter to the editor on the subject of a, a regular column that you wrote? Uh, a letter which contained just one word? You, you do, right? Can you tell I very well. So when I was working at the Columbian newspaper in Vancouver, Washington, for the, those of you in your audience who are geographically challenged, Vancouver, British Columbia is up here. Vancouver, Washington's down here, right mm-hmm. near Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I wrote what I thought was humor. I, other people <laughs> liked it. That was great. But my editors seemed to like it. So I would write twice weekly hum- uh, humor column, and I'm sorry I, I didn't say this. I should I should have it to show you, but the, when you go on vacation and you're a columnist, the paper runs a thing at the bottom where your column usually uh, runs, and it says that you're away, and they do that because if they didn't, no one would miss you. Mm. So, so one day they wrote the editor put at the bottom where my column usually ran. It said Jim Stasiowski's column will resume Wednesday, February 12th. And a letter, to, a postcard to the editor arrived, and there was one word underneath it. It was why, with a question mark. <laughs> right, call him one third why. That right. was a great. I thought that was the the great. I I still have that somewhere. I I have a ton of stuff that I had to, would have to look through to find it. But yeah, that was and the, and and that's an example. You, you you two things. Number one, for that guy to be able to write that, and I say guy, it might not have been a guy. He must have read my column, which is. Mm-hmm. One reason I write it. But the other thing is you want people to respond, even when they're mad, even when they're angry, even when you're going to go home now and feel terrible. That's fine. That We learn from that. And it means people care. And that's the problem we have. We, we, we got to where newspapers, people didn't care about newspapers, about mm-hmm. the hard work that we do. And that was a, it was really, if you look at it, there were two corporate decisions that were made, one in the 19, early 1980s and one uh, much a few years later. One was to write like USA Today, which is uh, 12-inch stories, and only one jumps off the page. So writers then were just writing very short stories because we thought we could outdo USA Today and, and, and TV, which is TV stories of that long. Yeah. And the other was when the internet came in and some editor or publisher somewhere said, you know what we should do? We should do a website, but we should make it free. And as soon as that one did it, 
This is what sheep we have in the newspaper business. Mm-hmm. This, this one play, uh, paper did it. Everybody said, let's do it. They did it for five years and they said, okay, now we're going to start charging for it. Right. And get what happened. <laughs> nobody paid for it. Oh. Nobody wanted to pay for it because yeah. they'd been getting it for free. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. You and I might still be doing it, Staz, if not for that moment. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, it was a sad day. So we're going to play a round of good stuff in one moment. We're up against the clock a little bit here, but a couple more questions, Staz. One, one is you mentioned that the, the sin that many reporters make is they go out expecting a certain story. And then when they interview, they're kind of only hearing the story that they expected to hear. So this is a good lesson for podcasters too, which I tell all my clients here at pod 617, pod617.com, Boston Podcast Network, that when you interview somebody, the most important thing, like people get obsessed with landing a good guest, getting all these, doing research, make sure you're knowledgeable about the person and then coming up with good questions for the person. But I tell them that all that is great, do it to a degree, but never do it at the expense of stifling your curiosity and certainly never do it at the expense of listening. And the example I always give is I had a podcaster who was, she was a wedding planner and she was interviewing a personal trainer and the subject was like getting in shape for your wedding. And so she's asking him a bunch of icebreaker questions and now uh, it's your favorite movie. And what she says, what's your favorite cocktail? And the guy says, well, I'll do a gin and tonic every now and again, but I'm not, I'm not that really much of a drinker, but, but that's another story. And to her credit, she didn't move on to from question number five to question number six. She said, well, this is a podcast. We got time. What's what, right. Can you tell us that story? And he, w- he was kind enough to share that he had, as a young man, he had a job lined up and um, uh, like after college and during college, he showed up to some important meeting drunk and all of a sudden all his plans were shattered. He lost the job offer. His, his life was detoured. And it was a really moving story. And if she hadn't been paying attention, she wouldn't have gotten that. Do you do you try to practice that in life generally? And because to me, I tell people it's it's a skill that it runs through all kinds of things like improv comedy. I've been taking improv comedy classes, Staz. This is one of my new weird obsessions. And <laughs> and the the principle of it is not just to be funny and spontaneous. It's to really listen to what the prior person is saying and pick up on it. So th- that that's a convoluted question, Staz, but uh, tell us a little bit about the, whether I'm onto something. Well, you definitely are. And, 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 I, I, and I appeal to everyone who might pay attention to what we're saying today, which is probably my wife and your wife, and that's it. But, <laughs> uh, uh, take into account your own human nature. Okay, when you go to talk to someone. Now, how do we communicate the, the basic currency? Of, 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 of communication is telling stories. That's how we communicate. Because if I ask you how you're feeling and you say, great, we got nothing. We got yeah. nowhere to go. Right. Okay. Right. So, so what I try to do is I try to come up with a story that I can tell about myself or my wife or an experience I've had or a friend of mine had or whatever. That would, because this, think of how you do listen. You, you listen to the other person. And then when they tell their story, you say, human nature, you say, I think I can top that. You don't yeah. say it out loud, but they, they want to tell you about the time they broke their leg or, or, or whatever. You're broken leg. That's nothing compared to what happened. Right. So I would always, not always, depending on time, but I would always do along the lines that you were talking about, about the, uh, of the woman asking, well, that's another story. Oh, yeah, tell me that story. 
you want to try to get them into that storytelling mood because if only if they're only answering questions, they may be in a hurry. They may not like you for one reason or another. So they're just going to give you answers. Mm. It's the Larry Bird thing, right? Larry Bird was a terrible interview for a long time because he didn't really want to talk. Mm. So he would look for, or, or any of the coaches at the halftime of the NBA, they don't want to talk. They no. want to get into the team. So they're looking for ways to get out of this. What you need to do is tell them a story. It doesn't have to be a long story. It can be something kind of goofy, but recognize that most people are going to be saying, oh, I can top that. Mm. And then they'll tell you a story. And that gets you in that whole conversational storytelling mood rather than just answering questions. That's great advice. Questions can be deaf because answers can be deaf. But conversation, storytelling is, is really valuable. It is. It's it's like being at the carnival, and when you take that swing, that huge mallet, and try to ring the bell. But if the person before you gets it up to eight, you're going to want to go to nine. You just you just do. <laughs> yeah. Last last question before we move on, and that's: Do you have uh, a top two or three pet peeves when it comes to grammatical errors that people make, or syntax errors, or anything like that? Because I have a couple that are just that continue to drive me up the wall to this day. Do you have any favorites? Oh my! Well, uh, yeah. Let me. Let, yes, I do. Awesome. Oh, that's a good one because I, I tell. I, I write in. I'm writing in my book. Okay, I'm going to give you the the truly. What is the truly awesome test? Okay, mm. now you got to be a baseball fan to appreciate this. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to give you the truly awesome test, and that is uh, on on April twelfth, nineteen sixty. Excuse me, I'm, I've got that wrong. Blah blah blah. On July 3rd, 1963, at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, mm-hmm. the New York Giants were playing the Milwaukee Brew Braves. Juan Marichal was pitching for the San Francisco Giants, and Warren Spahn was pitching for the Milwaukee Braves. The game went 16 innings, mm. and the final score was one to nothing. Mm-hmm. And Marichal and Spahn went the distance every pitch. You're kidding me. And the game was won Mm -hmm. in the bottom of the 16th Mm -hmm. on a solo homer by Willie Mays. Mm. And I say to writers, if you can get, if you can do better than that, then you can use the word awesome. That's the (laughs) truly awesome test right there. And and, and I use, I I, I use that as a kind of funny thing, but that's how, otherwise, I don't care whether it's your word or, or the source's word that you're interviewing. Don't use the word awesome. It means nothing. It, me- it, it, it has no meaning. If you use it as the real meaning, which is that makes you in awe, that makes you speechless, that makes you stand back and say, I've never seen anything like that. That's awesome. Otherwise, there's the truly awesome test. I re- yeah, I remember that being a student in high school and being in a creative writing class, that awesome was one of the words I liked to use. And so that was the early to mid eighties. And at some point, somebody stole the word and changed the meaning into just extremely good. That's not what awesome, (laughs) awesome, correct me if I'm wrong, literally inspiring awe. So, so, so that's not a really good pizza. How's the pizza? Ah, it's awesome. No, no, no. Pizza should not be inspiring awe in you. It's 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 the the Grand Canyon is awesome, right? Tidal waves are awesome, right? So I will trade you. I'll just tell you the 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 two that 
Well, one I've noticed that people have lost all control over is the difference between less and fewer. And it's mm. really simple, people. If mm. you can if you can count them, the items you're talking about, if they are items, you call fewer. If it's so, it's fewer pencils in that jar, less time to r- write your column, whatever. Right? Nobody knows that one. And that's true. And then the other thing that I, I, w- I will go to my grave fighting to get the word literally back to where it belongs yeah. because it mm. used to be a great word because it, and it and you could use it for a lot of different things in, including humor i was in a, a college class once and i walked in for the first day of class i'm with my friend mark and it turns out this was a popular class and it was spilling over and the, there were even some people who appeared to be in their 60s who were, were probably auditing the class they probably lived in town and I said, geez, Mark, everybody and their mother is in this class. And he said, yeah, literally. See, that's <laughs> funny because they, they literally the, the mother was there. But now, the, do you realize the stas in the dictionary? There's now an alternate definition of the word literally, which means which which means not literally. In other, in other words, he, yeah. literally, he literally carried that that team on his back. That's yeah. now an acceptable use. No, he didn't literally carry the team on his back. That's impossible. It's physically impossible. <sighs> anyway, anyway. All right, Staz, if you ha- can you hang on for five more minutes? Oh, sure. Okay. We're going to play around to good stuff in one minute where both Staz and I will recommend something good for you. Before we do that, let me just quickly remind you what we do here at the Boston Podcast Network. Pod617.com is where you go if you want your own podcast. Your own podcast is a great way to connect with your network, whether you're a lawyer, a financial advisor, entrepreneur, really anyone that wants to reach a bunch of people. Podcasting is a great way to do it. And by the way, it's fun. You tell stories. Look at me and Staz. We're having a blast. This is the most fun I'm going to have all month. And if you go to pod617.com, we'll get you started on your show. We'll produce the whole thing for you. Intro music, outro music. We'll send you out a quality USB mic you can use at your home or come to our studios in Westwood, Mass. Pod617.com. In pod, we trust. Okay, let's play good stuff. Oh, that's the good stuff. All right. I keep calling you Staz. The man deserves respect. His name is Jim Stasioski. What What do you have to recommend uh, to our listeners today? Well, I want to start by talking about what I don't recommend, and that is modern fiction. I used to love to read novels, mm-hmm. and I still love to read. I read just about anything. But I have gotten really depressed by the modern novel because it's all about what people are thinking and how they're thinking about what just happened to them. And there's all this description of this interior stuff. And it's obviously a lot of it is probably plausible. And so it probably has some insight and makes you think a little bit, but what happened to action plot in novels? I I, I just picked up this one not too long ago, called The Liar's Dictionary, and it's about words. Mm. And it got great reviews, fabulous reviews. And I read it, and I was bored silly the whole time. And and there's another one called The Idiot that got great reviews about two years ago. It's about a young woman who's who's experiencing things she'd never experienced before. And again, it got great reviews, and it's supposed to be so funny. Funniest book you'll read all year. I maybe snickered twice or something. (laughs) Right. 
Right. So I'm going to recommend a novel for you. And, and actually, this is a mixed review. The novel, this one I'm recommending is really good. But then she did a follow-up, not the same characters, but a follow-up that I was very disappointed in. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's called Seating Arrangements. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, the, and the writer, the author is Maggie Shipstead, S-H-I-P-S-T-E-D. And it is a, it has some serious stuff in it. But everything, I couldn't wait to turn the page because something was going to happen on the next page that I wasn't expecting. Or if I expected it, I didn't expect to read it so well structured, so well put. And it's about a, it's about a New England banker whose daughter is getting married. And it's about how this weekend goes of the wedding and the marriage and how he's almost gets having an into having an affair and though he's got this wonderful wife and it's and it ends up it doesn't end but at the very near the very end he is in a big rainstorm holding on to a weather vane at the top of a of a of a newly constructed house and, and how he got from being this staid banker in Connecticut i think it was to being on the weather vane is just it's, there's so much to it, and yet the people are interesting too. It's not just that the plot was good. Mm. I recommend seating arrangements. I love it. Seating arrangements by Maggie Shipstead. You can find it, of course, on Amazon. You can get it for a paper book for just twelve sixty six, or it's on audiobook. I'm going to get the audiobook of that. I need something new to listen to uh, in the car. Go to a bookstore. Go to a bookstore. All right. All right. Go Fine. I'll find for you. I'll go to a bookstore. I'll go to my local Barnes and Noble. Uh, we don't have any charming little bookstores around here. I'm sorry. Oh, whatever happened to what's the one? Oh, God, it's my favorite. Oh, on Brattle, 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 uh, books, Brattle yeah. Book Shop. Yeah, book shop. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe that's still there. I don't know. All right, Staz, I'll go for you. I'll check it out. So I was going to recommend a TV show, but instead I'm going to recommend just a, a random memory video because Staz got me going about storytelling. And so I'm going to tell you a, a very brief story, and it's about baseball, Staz, so you'll love it. And you may know this story, but in 1985, the Atlanta Braves were battling the – who are they playing here? It doesn't matter. They're locked in a game – I think with the Mets and the game goes to 18 innings and the Braves are, are all out of position players. So they have to send this uh, reliever named Rick camp up to the plate. He had never, he had barely had any hits in his life. Never mind any uh, home runs. And they're down to their last out here. The count is zero and two on Rick camp. I'm going to play the stats. You can watch the rest of us. You'll have to, you'll have to just listen to the audio. Here we go. Well, they could go to another pitcher, but an eight. Well, the only three guys left are Bedrosian, Perez, and Zane Smith. There's a strike going to. So now they research that. They figure the oh and two on camp. Bases are empty. Eighteen innings. It's it's like four in the morning at this point or something. And he is at the deep left. He's so fast. It is gone. Holy cow! Oh my goodness! I don't believe it. So he ties the game with a home run. That was the outfielder who put his hands on his head dejectedly was Lenny Dykstra, by the way. The call was by John Sterling, who later, of course, famous for being the Yankee announcer. And the reason I bring that up is not because just that that alone was, was a great story, but it's interesting that this, this, this weird baseball moment, we love talking about these things, telling stories. How, can you imagine that? The most unlikely guy in the world tied the game in the 18th inning. In the 19th inning... 
he had to go back out and pitch. And he surrendered, I forget how many, but a number of runs. He ended up being the losing pitcher and actually striking out to end the game. And so, and so cuz he had to go up a bat and bat again. And then and then later in his life, he was sentenced to uh, federal prison for conspiring to steal more than 2 million dollars from a community mental health center in Augusta, Georgia. So, it just goes to show you like I don't you probably do this too, Staz. You go down rabbit holes. Now, I think he deserves a biography to be done on him. Yeah. Maybe he regrets hitting that home run. Maybe he turned everything around in his life the wrong way. I don't know. So. <laughs> sure. Uh, hey, I really appreciate it on the uh, scoreboard out there. When the ball went over, I saw it in the bottom left. Mm-hmm. That night, the Baltimore Orioles, my team, uh, beat the Kansas City Royals 5-3. to three. So <laughs> thank you for showing that. Uh, yeah, we used to think we were tortured souls in, in Boston with uh, our dearth of championships. Um, I give you a lot of credit for sticking with those O's. I know you love them. So where have you gone, Doug DeSensei's? That's all I want to know. We have to run because I have uh, somebody else coming to the studio here. But Jim Stasioski, I hope you had fun. I said we were going to go about 30 minutes. We went almost twice that long because we were having so much fun. Did you enjoy yourself, my friend? I, I did very much. I have it in my hand. He called you Stremsky. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. He's my favorite. Of course, he's my favorite player. I always wore number eight in Little League. I didn't want to tell you till now because I knew it would throw you off your game. (laughs) It has. It has me completely jealous and betwixt and between Yaz, wherever you are. He's still around, by the way. He's not dead, but I I salute you and and so does Staz. Ah, the great number eight. Anyway. Great, great seeing you. I hope when you see our old old pals or talk to them, Give them my regards. I miss every every one of you. Very kind of you, Staz. I will, and I'll make sure they listen to this and hear all these great Staz stories. Stay on the line for one minute, Staz, while I wrap up the show and tell people, follow us on Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, go to pod617.com if you like your own podcast. On behalf of the great Jim Stasioski, my name is Dave. I'm just a guy from Boston, but if you're not from Boston, you must be the other guy. Have a great day, everybody. You...